Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Christina Galston is a self-proclaimed Jurican and has spent her life honing her cross-cultural upbringing into a powerfully honest sense of humor and razor-sharp wit. A master storyteller, she has been performing stand-up at clubs and colleges all over the United States for 17 years, and was an up-next comic at Comedy Central's Clusterfest in 2019. Watch her new comedy feature on mental health at ComedyCentral.com, and listen to her podcast, Wasted Wisdom, on Spotify. Christina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. Now, earlier this month, you were at the Asheville Comedy Festival in North Carolina. How'd it go? Oh, that was so fun. That was really awesome. Asheville is a beautiful place with some really good barbecue. It was a lot of fun. We were performing at the Diana Wortham Theater. I always feel like I'm saying that wrong. Wortham. It was a beautiful theater. They had like an inflatable like astronaut on the stage, which was really cool. And also some sort of Subaru or I forget. It was like there was an SUV on stage that I think it was one of the sponsors. <laughs> uh, random. And uh, there was a lot of dope comics that I got to meet. They had some really great food in the green room, nice drinks, really nice setup. And we all did uh, some after parties pretty much every night, which we closed down. They were awesome. Very fun. Now, was that the first time you performed on a stage having to share it with an SUV? Yep. That would be my first time <laughs> performing on the stage with an SUV and an inflatable astronaut. Yeah. It's like, uh-huh. you know, you would think that the astronaut, as big as he was and just white, glowing, inflated, you know, just really played second fiddle to the SUV still. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's hard to beat. You know, you can have a family of four in there with extra cargo space. I totally get it. Right. What are your thoughts on North Carolina barbecue, by the way? Where do you rank it in terms of the barbecue ranking in the U.S.? Mm, I would rank it. I mean, I'm surprisingly rank it pretty high. It was really good. But, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was also pretty high when I ate it. (laughs) Maybe, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. Uh Not as loaded as I was when I had it. Perhaps that wouldn't be as great. I did love their burgers as well, too. Their burgers were pretty bussin'. You know, some fresh arugula on there. They did like this mix of meats. Mm. Shout out to the pores out there. They are heavy pourers. We do like that. Oh, good. At first, I thought you said shout out to the pores. And I was like, that is a very interesting way to shout out impoverished people. But then I understood (laughs) you were saying pourers, as in those who pour things. Yeah, that's like when, you know, you say a rural drawer or brewery. It's like just one of those words that you already sound drunk when you say it, you know? Exactly. No, that's great. And to what you said real quick before we get to some of your biography, it is rare when there is something that tastes as good, both high or drunk and sober, but it truly is miraculous when, like, let's say you have something for the first time while you're, you know, under the influence of some substance and it tastes amazing because I think when you're high or drunk, I think any food gets like an extra 2.5 points on the 1 to 10 scale. Oh my God, yeah. Like a 7 is a solid 9.5. Oh, hell yeah. And depending on how like how hungry you are, you could put ketchup on a napkin. Someone tell you it's a flatbread and you're going you're gonna to down that thing. Exactly. But it truly is a, a thing of wonder if you have something drunk or high and then you have it sober, let's say a few days later, and it's just as good. I love that too. I live for those feelings. That's what life's about. I think that segues pretty well into your style of comedy, which is often a mixture of vulnerability and raw honesty. And so I want to start with something that you had in the bio that you wrote for me to read, which is Jurican. Yes. Because I would feel uncomfortable saying that if I invented it. (laughs) But let's talk about that. So you were born to a Jewish dad and a Puerto Rican mom. Yes. 
Your mom and dad divorced when you were rather young and you lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Florida with your mom and two sisters eating what you've called, quote, mustard sandwiches. (laughs) So to start us off, I think I just want to start with, were the sandwiches just mustard and bread or is your distaste for mustard now so strong that the mustard is all you remember? That would be what happened there. Yeah. My distaste for mustard was so strong that that's all I remember eating. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that we only had liver and onions like a few times in my life, but I'm still so traumatized by that (laughs) as well. It's a trigger. I'm fully triggered by the liver and onions. (laughs) It took me a while to even like onions because I just thought that they were, you know, associated with liver. I was like, oh, hell no. Those are disgusting. But yeah, we did have to eat a lot of struggle meals. But there are some struggle meals that I still love to this day that I feel like a lot of people don't know about, especially growing up Puerto Rican. I love, 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 love corned beef and rice. It's like Mm. corned beef from the can. And we just cook it like we season it up. It looks like dog food, but I promise you once we're done cooking it, it's so good. And just with some white rice, I'll make that a lot just for myself. And it's just something that we put some potatoes in there too. Oh man, I'm getting hungry. It's just something that I love, but it's a super cheap meal, you know, like the corned beef. I mean, now it's kind of expensive. It was like six or seven bucks. White rice you should already have. And then, you know, you just season it up. And that was one of my favorite things growing up to eat. But we did eat a lot of rice. We ate so much rice. I didn't like eating rice when I was an adult for a while. Yeah, you had to take a rice break. No, I, I totally get it. Yeah, I had too much. My, my rice tolerance was too high. <laughs> so I had to get my rice tolerance back low so I could want it again. You know, Anthony Bourdain said something years ago on one of his shows about how some of the best cuisine around the world is basically poverty food because oftentimes the more rural or impoverished communities dating back, you know, hundreds of years, they had to make do with what they had. And so they had to get really inventive either with like the quote unquote less desirable cuts of meat mm-hmm. or with just the vegetables they could grow. And so oftentimes some of the best cuisine, you know, in his opinion, and I would share that opinion comes from places that, that had a lot of, you know, to kind of quote you, they had a lot of like struggle meals, right? Yeah. But I think you can make so many inventive things when you have to rely on things like spices and having to cook things for a long period of time. Was that something you experienced as well, or was it mostly just mustard and onions? (laughs) (laughs) No, we had, so when we were way younger, there was this weekend that my dad came to watch us. And, you know, when your dad's there, you know, you ever see a single dad cook something for (laughs) kids? You're like, whoa, bro, we're not drunk. (laughs) How are we going to eat this? This is not delicious. Like, I'll never forget him making us breakfast one morning. And this is the first time it's like just dad, like my mom's out of town. And he made us breakfast. We wanted toast with jelly, but he put butter on it too. And, you know, as an adult, sometimes people do that. They put butter and jelly, but you would have thought that he just like pulled those pieces of toast out of the trash. I mean, me and my sister just threw ourselves on the floor. Like, what is this? (laughs) Ew. You know what I mean? And like, he would mix all this stuff together for like a scramble. And it's like, kids don't be eating raw veggies and eggs like this. Like, what are you doing, bro? Like, (laughs) kids don't eat this shit. So it just would be traumatizing because you're a little kid. And that weekend, I remember him making us sandwiches with mustard in it and me just being, I couldn't tell you what else was in the sandwich because it was just mustard as far as I was concerned. (laughs) And I was just like, Mm. you're trying to kill us. Like, where's my mom? I want her back. You should not be left alone with kids. Yeah. What you said kind of reminds me of a YouTube comment that I read in one of your stand-up routines. Quote, I love this. Her comedy makes me cringe in a way that's satisfying and reminds me of a too blunt best friend you seem to always have with you, end quote. And I think that's because a lot of your comedy and a lot of your insights are like very relatable, right? They're not talked about in a way that feels distant. They're talked about in a way where it feels like your funny friend if they were really, really funny. 
So I think to stick it with your childhood for a second, like, and this is kind of a well-worn question, but I love asking it because I think each comedian answers it differently. When did you first start to realize that you were funny or funnier than some of the people around you? And when did you start to realize after that, oh, I think I want to do this for a living? Thank you for that comment on that YouTube. Also, whoever wrote that, I love that comment as well. That is so sweet in comparison to comments I've received before. So (laughs) really love that comment that warmed my heart. I'll be licking that compliment for the rest of the evening. (laughs) I knew that I was funny when I was younger because, I mean, my entire family is funny. Like everyone in my family has a sense of humor. And my grandmother had, my abuela had a big personality. My papa has a big personality. My mother is one of the most charismatic people that you will ever meet. And truly an actress. I say it all the time. I'm like, you know, the Academy snubs her every year when they do not nominate her for an award because she is out here acting up. (laughs) I knew I was funny when I was younger, but I don't think I really got that I was like super funny to people until high school. And especially when I won Class Clown, that's when I was like, whoa, you guys like really think I'm funny, (laughs) which was really cool. And it was in high school that I first thought about doing stand up, but high school is so terrifying, you know? And in my beginning years of high school, I felt like, you know, I wasn't really proud of those years, you know, and some stuff that I felt like was embarrassing happened. So, you know, by the time I'm a senior, I'm a varsity cheerleader, I'm class clown, I got all, all this shit going for me. You know, I get this little inkling inside me that's like, yo, you should do stand up. You should like do it for the talent show. And I was like, I just had a titty attack when I danced at the talent show. How am I going to get up there and do a joke I've never done before? You know, like, mind you, Comic View had just came out when I was in middle school. Besides that, the only comedy I had ever seen on TV was A Living Color. It wasn't anything that I could really connect with as a young kid that I was like, you know, as far as like watching adults. For me, I just wanted to watch cartoons. So, Stand-up was still so new to me, even then, that it was just like, high school was too terrifying for me to ever try it. And then it wasn't until like a year after high school when I was like working at Hooters and meeting people and people were really pushing me. Two women in particular that were my friends, Gina and Tish from St. Pete Hooters were really pushing me hard to do stand-up. And then I started doing it. And then I really did fall in love with it once I moved to New York and it became my whole identity and everything that I do. Yeah. And you were also doing theater at the time when you were in New York on and off, right? Yes. You were performing and touring with Linda Nieves-Powell's off-Broadway production of Yo Soy Latina. And if I have this right, you would also perform stand-up after each performance, right? Uh, No, I think I got to do stand-up before with them. But no, I wasn't performing stand-up afterward. I was doing stand-up while I was in the play, like not in those cities either, because we'd be busy doing stuff um, when we were booked on that. I was just talking about, that's so funny you bring that up. I was just talking about it yesterday, like how I was young when I was doing that. It was a really good intro to traveling and touring and doing shows and memorizing lines, which I even remember one college show we did. I've completely blacked out on stage. I've like, not from drinking, but like my mind went blank and I just kept repeating my line. And then like, it was like a tense moment where there's like two girls flanking me on, on either side of me. I remember just whispering to them, like, I don't know my line, bitch. <laughs> like, and everyone's looking at me. So it's like, I don't even know why I'm whispering. Like, the lights are on you. Like, they can see you. I just was kind of thinking about it yesterday about how I was young and I wish that I would have took it a little more seriously and that I would have stuck with that a little bit longer because it was, I love Linda and I loved the girls and it was a fun time. I wish I would have been a little more mature then. Your recent Comedy Central stand-up from earlier this year, 
you have this bit where you talk about, quote, what flavor mental illness you have. <laughs> and you mentioned that yours is social anxiety. You just mentioned talking about blacking out. And again, not blackout because you were drunk, although you also talk about those escapades on stage as well. I have to, you know, make it specific because they're like, wait a minute, girl, let's check because we never know with you. Were you drunk or did your <laughs> mind just go blank? You should say blanking out, not blacking out. But what is that like? I think to a lot of folks hearing that someone who does stand-up comedy, which is basically putting yourself on a stage where everyone's looking at you under a bunch of hot lights, would seem like exactly the opposite of what someone with social anxiety would do. So how is it walking that line, you know, struggling with social anxiety and, and being uncomfortable around others at times, but then also putting yourself into a position where you're constantly, to quote a word that you use often in one of your specials, triggering yourself, yeah. triggering your social anxiety, what is that like? What keeps driving you to do that? Is it just that the love of stand-up overpowers your anxiety? And how do you walk that line? That's a really great question. Firstly, like knowing early on, is there something wrong with me? Because I can't walk into a room without sucking the attention out of it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you could either be one of those people or like sometimes when I see those people, I'm like, do you do stand-up? You should, because it's the cheapest form of therapy for people like us. <laughs> it's such a release and such a release of serotonin and also just like it opens doors in your own brain. It opens doors for, you know, your path in life. You never know what you're going to do. You could start off doing stuff and be annoyed by it. You could be like, because everything's, you know, change and things that are different can throw you off. I'd say as far as knowing that I want to do stand-up, being terrified of it, my first show I threw up, but still pushing myself to do it because I know that it feels so good to get that laugh. Mm. And a lot of comedians will describe it like a drug. A lot of comedians that do drugs will describe it like a drug. I'm one of those comics as well because I've never smoked crack. I've had a little meth, but I've never had crack. <laughs> And I haven't shot heroin in between my toes or, you know, my butt cheeks or anything. I'm glad we have that on the record. You know what? And I'm glad we do too, honestly, because I feel like sometimes <laughs> people wonder. Uh, <laughs> I, I've never put ecstasy in my butthole, even though I know it'll hit me faster. Okay. I just, I've never done it, but it is a high that is like, especially like preparing jokes, going up there, trusting yourself, sticking to your shit, like doing the work that feels so fucking good going up there, maybe being in a rut, maybe being like, but I still got to get up there and I don't even know what I'm going to say, but I got to harness the energy of like, I know this is fun. I got to get back to the fun. You know, there's this part of it that's so fucking fun. And especially when you get up there and you just have fun, you go off script, you dip back into an old joke or build something on stage or create this moment that maybe you can't do it again with another crowd, but these people will never fucking forget you because of that moment. Mm. It's just this multi-layered onion of fucking weirdness that the more that you pull it back, the more obsessed you become with it. You're like, oh, is this another way for people to love me? This is great. <laughs> and then there's the part of it where I struggle. You know, that's the high part of it. And then the low part would be trying to exist without having drinks, even though I am physically used to being drunk in these scenarios and not even necessarily being drunk, but being buzzed until buzz becomes drunk. And so the same amount of drinks that I had yesterday hit me different today, or I have too fucking much, or I just do too fucking much. Wanting to be more professional, almost plateauing in your career because you're not going no fucking where because you keep following this. My new favorite thing that I read was gray area drinking, where it's like, you know, you haven't lost your kids or anything. You haven't killed anybody. But, you know, you're not doing anything. You're not being productive. You're not. So it's not killing you. Mm. It's sure shit not helping you. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just easy to bring the two together. And I don't feel like I have a drinking problem. You know, I don't drink by myself. I don't need to do things like that. I think I have a drinking habit mm. where it's just like, even if I get off of work, you know? Yeah. It'll be like, I know this is going to make me feel bad. Or I know this will, everyone's trying to eat healthier, you know, the older that you get, of course, you know, because you just want to not feel like shit all goddamn day. So you're like, you know, you make all these plans during the day. I'm not going to drink. And then, you know what, maybe I'll go home and eat a salad or I'll have some fruit. I'll have a little yogurt. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, no, actually you just had some drinks and now you're eating wings and, you know, now you're... (laughs) You know, you didn't wash your face and it's all stupidity. You know what I mean? And it's just like this groundhog's day every day. Of, so you just kind of try to get out of that. The social anxiety comes from being in those positions where you want to make connections at the clubs. You want to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, I don't know if I want to talk to you fucking people unless I've had a drink. <laughs> but if you give this bitch a drink, if you give a mouse a cookie and if you give this bitch a drink, <laughs> you know where we're ending up, baby. And it's always Taco Bell. Okay, first, I <laughs> first, if you do not write a book, a children's book called If You Give This Bitch a Drink, <laughs> I will be so upset if you don't take that to market. <laughs> you know, like that ironic children's book narrated by Samuel Jackson. I think it's called Go the F to Sleep. Oh my God. <laughs> you should 100% have it drawn in like the classic children's style and be called If You Give This Bitch a Drink. Oh, yeah. Like if you give this bitch a drink, then she's going to want wings. And if she gets wings, I could just totally see that working. Yeah. Then she's going to smoke a cigarette. And if she smokes a cigarette, <laughs> she's going to feel like a fucking dragon because she just ate wings. What is she doing? <laughs> Why is she like this? You know, there's something I've noticed in creatives, because obviously we run in different crowds. You're more with stand-up comics. I'm more with folks in the entertainment industry, but not in stand-up comedy, obviously. But before I started film school, you know, however many years ago, there was a part of me wondering, like, you know, I always hear that people who work in the film industry smoke cigarettes, you know, a double-digit higher rate than the average population. They're more prone to be alcoholics. They're more prone to use drugs. And there was a part of me thinking, like, how much of that is true versus how much of that is a stereotype? And then I started working on film sets and I realized, oh, that's very true. So true. Very true, right? And the prevalence of addictive personality disorder or addiction in general, drug abuse, alcohol abuse is very prevalent within creative circles. And I'm going to tell you my theory on it. And then I want to hear what yours is and specifically more within the stand-up realm because it's something I've struggled with, not addiction per se, but I wonder if the part of the brain that allows creative people to think about a topic or an idea for extended periods of time, right? Because I think if you're a stand-up comic or if you're writing a screenplay or if you're working on a film, you have to kind of be obsessive to make something good, right? There's kind of that old saying within stand-up comedy, if it's your first idea, then at least half the crowd has thought of it, Mm -hmm. right? So to make it something funny, you have to keep thinking about it over and over and over again until you find an angle that's very unique that no one else could have thought of, but is also instantly relatable, right? And I think the same thing can be true with any creative endeavor. You have to be able to look at an object, right? A creative object in your mind from an angle that almost no one else has looked at it from. And to do that, you have to think about it a lot. And I wonder if that kind of recursive thinking, thinking about something over and over and over and over and over again, if anyone who's listening to this has ever struggled with depression or anxiety, that exact same thing, that thing in your brain that allows you to think about something long past anyone else would want to think about it is I think the same thing inverted when you're depressed or when you're anxious because you're thinking about something over and over and over and over and over again. I struggled with depression for many years on and off, oftentimes medicated with SSRIs 
or sometimes self-medicating in a very unhealthy way. But it's because my mind would often get stuck on the same goddamn thought and I would get depressed because I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I guess my question to you, Christina, is, is this something that you've noticed within the stand-up comedy realm? And is this something that you notice in your own way of thinking about comedy and your own anxiety? Yeah. As far as like even the part where you obsess about an idea. Yeah. And I see it in so many creatives, especially what's so hard is like when you watch someone writing a pilot, that's really hard. And your idea is constantly changing, especially if you're writing for TV. You know what I mean? Like that is just like, it's so hard. And I've been, you know, trying to do it myself. And it's like, you have to believe so much in your idea. I can see how that could break someone, you know, and you hear stories about people trying to sell their show that they've been working on for years. I know working on bits is one thing, but, you know, that's just something that it's like, damn, man, that's like a lot. I can see how that could drive someone to dip into other vices. It's such a thing too, when you work for yourself, like you have to push yourself in a weird way because it's for you. Like no one's going to knock on your door and be like, Hey buddy, where's your comedy? You have to keep going and people get stuck. And when you get stuck, it's easy to just feel better by having a few drinks. Also just in the melee, you don't even realize that before you know it, you've created this monster inside of you. Yeah. You look up and you're like, Whoa, it's been like 15 years. And even a few years ago, I think I might have called myself like not really a smoker, you know? And I'm like, mm. hold on, bitch, you are not as young as you think you are. You have been smoking for damn near 20 years. So like you are a smoker <laughs> just because you don't smoke in the morning or, or all the time. It doesn't mean that you're a casual smoker. You always have a pack of cigarettes ready. You're a smoker, like whether it's just while you drink or this or that. So it's kind of a thing where time gets away from you as well. And then you look up and you're like, whoa, I just developed this whole ass habit. I guess this is who I am. That's crazy. Yeah. Because <laughs> you wouldn't describe yourself like that to people. You know, I wouldn't even currently. If someone was like, are you a cigarette smoker? I'd be like, occasionally. Mm. When What I mean is every day. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally every day. Because you just don't see yourself as that. Yeah. That's a really astute observation. A lot of what we experience in our day-to-day -day lives is a kind of identity negotiation with ourselves yeah. where we're both striving to be something that we think we should be. And we're also trying to negate those things about us that we think we shouldn't be. And every single day, we're kind of telling a narrative to ourselves about ourselves that is varying degrees of truth. And that's one of the things that I really like about your comedy. For instance, the title of your Up Next Comedy Central special is, quote, the silver lining to blacking out. And your topics range from well, blacking out, to peeing your pants after blacking out, to private shower habits, to sleeping with ex-boyfriends. And what I like so much about your style of comedy is how vulnerable it is. You can see that you're pulling these stories from very real places and then mining them for comedy, which in my opinion is, I wouldn't say it's more difficult, but it's definitely more precarious than the style of comedy in which it's like, set up punchline. This thing didn't really happen. I'm talking about Pop-Tarts or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And again, I'm a huge Jerry Seinfeld fan. I have his book with four decades of jokes on my coffee table. But I guess my question to you, Christina, is how would you go about writing a joke? Because your jokes are stories with humor in them, almost in the style of a Dane Cook. There was one comment I read, a comment from another comic who was angry about Dane Cook's rise to stardom in the early 2000s, some comic in a green room while Dane Cook was performing maybe at the Laugh Factory or something. And the comic was pissed because he's like, where are the jokes, hmm. right? But the jokes are actually in the stories, but they're just kind of harder to see. Mm -hmm. And I feel kind of like that way with your comedy where it's like, there's no necessarily easily identifiable, here's the setup, 
airline food and here's the punchline. Yeah. But your stories are the jokes. So how do you go about writing that? And how did you figure out that that was kind of your brand? I think I just figured that out right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, just because I'm telling you, I've been working on my reels and stuff and I've been watching it and I'm like, damn it, man, my jokes are so long. Like, I just feel like, why is all this shit so long form? Like when I hear it. So I've been noticing that and I've been wanting to work on even just trimming the fat. My style of talking, I get, I'm very loose with it and I need to tighten it up a bit. But when I'm writing, I'm always pulling it from a real place. I was working on a bit last night, but again, I'm pulling it from a real place. Even when I was approached by Comedy Central to do a set about mental health, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Let me write down everything that I know about mental health and how it relates to me. And then let me look at some shit and then let me braid all that together. That's just always been my thing because that's how I feel like I make anything my own. Mm is by putting my little spin on it. And they always tell you too in comedy, like this is one thing that I heard a lot in the beginning when they tell you, you don't know what your persona is yet. You don't know who you are yet. Just work on your bits. You know, they always say like, how do you know that a bit is going to be unique to you as a comic? Mm. And the answer to that is, can any old body just say that exact bit on stage and people believe that it's their bit? Or would they say it and it wouldn't be natural to them? Or they say it and they're like, nah, that sounds exactly like Christina Galston. That's how that bitch talks, not how you talk. (laughs) So I've never like had that in my head as the thing that inspires me to write the jokes, but I've always used it as like confirmation for me where I'm like, it's not going to be your normal style. And of course I want a late night set. You know what I mean? And I see the jokes that go on late night. That shit don't look like what I'm presenting. (laughs) You know, like I see the ways that I would have to tweak and tone that up a bit, but I cannot write anything that's not true to me. Yeah. Even when I have, it doesn't resonate with me. Like everything in that mental health set is true, was real, comes from a real place. You know what, Michael? I guess I'm just too fucking real for these bitches. (laughs) I think that's the problem. (laughs) No, but you're right. I do um, pull everything from a very real place. A couple things there. One, I think, to pull another YouTube comment from one of your other stand-ups, this commenter wrote, quote, if I close my eyes, I would almost think I was on the phone with a friend. She's so funny, end quote. I think that's a great compliment to your work because, again, your jokes, your stories are so relatable that people feel like, oh, Christina's just telling me something exactly as it happened. But I think that with your style of comedy, where it sounds like someone just telling a story... I think people really can underappreciate how difficult that is to do because, yes, we've all been in a circle with a friend who, whenever they tell a story, it's hilarious, right? And you're at the bar, you've all had a few drinks, and you're just laughing hysterically, right? But 99% of those people, and really, I'm kind of quoting stand-up comics making this exact same observation, which is 99% of those people who are really funny in your friend group would never do well in stand-up comedy Because there is a distinct difference between telling a story to people who already know you in a funny way after a couple drinks and developing that story over an extended period of time in which you're hitting specific comedic beats and building structure into that story and adding exaggeration where appropriate and changing things where appropriate so the punchline is harder. I think especially with your particular brand of comedy, Christina, it's an invisible craft, right? Because if it was just, you know, set up punchline, traditional, this joke lasts a minute, people would understand it more as a craft than the kind of invisible craft of how you tell a joke. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. 
So the friend you're describing, you know, the one that is always going to have the attention and is always telling a funny story. The thing that doesn't make them a stand up, I believe sometimes, a lot of times, is the reading of the room. Because that's one of the things, like when you asked earlier about how did I know when I was funny or that I was going to do stand up comedy, I started noticing too when I would tell the same story again and again and again Mm. to different people. And I would always do it a little bit different and I would always tighten it up. It would be a little bit sad at the end of that because I'd be like, it just feels like the story had a lot more meat on it. But I didn't realize I was trimming that fat Mm. as a comic before I was doing comedy. A lot of people will say, hey, my friend's so funny. You should meet them. They should do comedy, you know, or my friend wants to do comedy. Can you talk to them about it? One of my best friends, I've got him doing stand-up. And from the moment I met him, I was like, you should be doing stand-up, not me, you know, but it's not his first thing that he does. He's more of a writer. So it makes him, of course, nervous. That's a nerve wracking thing to do. And it's just something that I always try to convince people. I'm like, if you have been telling the same story to your friends and to your coworkers and at your dinner party and you've trimmed the fat, like you've taken out the shit that doesn't work and now you've added in a little spice or, you know, you, you put in the act out. I mean, hell, are you doing callbacks? You are already doing standup. You've been doing standup. You just haven't done it on stage yet. That would be the biggest hurdle is to just get over that on stage thing, which to me, I akin it to. The feeling of you needing to get on stage and just get it the fuck over with so that you can figure out who you're going to be on stage and how you're going to do your standup is the same feeling that you have your first day of work somewhere. It's the same fucking feeling. And what that means is you just need to do it and get it over with. That way you feel comfortable. Like when you go to a job the first day and you, you're like, yeah. just call me, I'm sorry, because I'm sorry. You enter a room, you're just like, I'm sorry. Is that a door? How do you use it here? Yeah. Can I just sit in these chairs? Well, where do you guys pee at? Yeah. You, you just ask dumb questions. You act like a fucking idiot because you've never been there before. You know, you've never done it. So you just have to do it a few times and then figure out, okay, now how do I do this now that I know how to do it? As a freelancer, I completely relate to that because every couple of weeks or every few months, I'm often working in a place for the first time and I have to do that over and over and over again. Right. It's like, oh, I didn't know. I, I, I can't walk through this door. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm new here. But eventually you get used to it and it becomes a kind of skill that's kind of developing in the background. Louis C.K. has been doing the rounds on comedy podcasts recently because he recently had a film out. And I love the way that he describes how he kind of writes jokes. And it sounds sort of similar to how you experience the joke writing process, which is he writes it on stage in real time based on audience reaction. And then over time, he develops the joke based on audience feedback. He'll have kind of a loose premise that he'll write down on like a napkin. And then he'll just start talking about it on stage, like in a small club. And then based on where the audience gets silent or when it laughs, he then remembers that and then punches it up there, and then kind of writes based on how the audience is reacting to any given thing he's talking about. Sort of similar to how you said, you tell the same story over and over again. And if you have that comedic instinct, you start realizing where like the valleys are, where the mountains are, where it gets a lot of laughs, where people are kind of tense, wondering where you're going to go. Is that kind of how you write your stuff on stage as well? Or are you crafting it more behind the scenes? Absolutely. Because I've been doing it so long, I have a lot of bits that are just floating around. So I'll go back to those a lot because I know that they're good. You know what I mean? And they just need to be fleshed out. So I'll start off with if I'm being like, recently I felt like I was a little bit in a rut and I was like, I'm really getting sick of those jokes that I've been doing. I need to do something else. So then I saw a stupid post about 
women having surgery, a new plastic surgery that we're all supposed to be getting. So we look better in tights. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's great. Cause that actually reminded me about a joke about pussy meat. Let me make sure that I talk about that tonight. And the way that I worked through that pussy meat joke. And you know what? I'm glad we're taking this so seriously right now. And I'm glad I chose this example. We're just going to keep on with this one. But the way that I was able to, for lack of a better word, flesh out that pussy meat bit the other night, it was a magical thing. Like, honestly, it's so great to create on stage. You kind of go up there with the premise and I'll do that a lot too. Like, I'll be like, I don't know if this is going to really work, but this crowd kind of seems like hype and lit and a little bit like drunk, like they're going to have fun. So now you can kind of create up there. I've done that a few times. And even sometimes with bits that you feel like they don't get the love that they should, Mm. but then you do it on a night where people are really cool. And then you're like, Oh, now I figured it out. Like I said something different tonight because they give you the energy back. That's such a cool way to do things. I respect everyone's process but I relate more to that process and also the process of like, something's got to happen to me in order for it to be a new bit. Or if not, I'm going to connect something to an old bit, you know, like I'm a recycler or remixer. I've always been that way about some of anything, clothes, anything. That kind of reminds me of, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's about art in general. Like once art is released, it belongs both to the artist and to the viewer or the person reading or watching that art. Mm -hmm. And with something where like a painting, let's say, where you make it in private and then you release it as a finished product, you know, you'll get the audience reception once it's already done. You'll see how they like it or don't like it in an art gallery or some such or a movie or a a finished story. But with something like stand-up comedy, The art belongs to you and the audience at the exact same time you're telling it or developing it, and you're getting to see in real time whether the joke is being embraced or rejected by that audience. I watched your February 10th, 2017 stand-up at the Secret Loft Show in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and it was a really strange experience for me watching some of your jokes, which I had seen absolutely kill in other clips, not do well in that room. And maybe it's because it was how low the temperature was. You mentioned at the start how cold it was in that loft. Yeah. Or maybe it was just the crowd. But just to go back to what you said about how you're sometimes in a room where people are just absolutely responding and vibing with your jokes. And then other times you're in a room where you're telling the exact same jokes and they're just bombing or getting very few laughs. Like, what is that like as a comic to know that material is going to work in 90% of the rooms you try it in, but there's always going to be a 10% of rooms in which it's just not going to fly? And how do you adapt, if at all, in real time to the different vibes that any given audience around the country is going to give you? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I've been complimented before for reading the room, you know, that same day. And then I go and do a show and I'm like, whoa, where's the bitch that knew how to read the room? Because uh, it's not me tonight. (laughs) It happens sometimes, you know, and then sometimes people will be weird and they'll come up to you later and just say, we loved you. We just, I guess, don't laugh. You know, when you do this as a job, you can't take it too personally. Like you just got to start taking the good parts of it. Cause if you sit there and focus on the bad parts, you can't do nothing with that kind of attitude. So for me, I try to focus on the good parts. I can feel when I'm getting in a rut, even if those jokes are killing to me, they're like killing me at that point. I'm tired of doing them. (laughs) I'm just tired of it. It's not fun. Either I'll plow through the set And I'll just get louder, you know, or I'll just start fucking with people or I will, if I feel like a joke's going down, I'll start pointing people out, calling them out by what they're wearing or making up nicknames for people. That's the part of the sets where you want to start doing more crowd work and getting them involved because then you can at least create the moment. That's one thing I do hate is when 
a comic is up there, the shit's not working, and I don't care if it works everywhere else. Acknowledge it. Fucking say something. Yeah. Say that they don't like it. People love when you tell the truth. Yeah. Or, you know, anything, anything. I did this show once where the host was in a big hurry because he had a super important show to do afterwards. And it's like, okay, cool. I was headlining and I could tell he just really wanted it to hurry up and be over with. And I'm like, that's fine. I'll even keep it cute. Like as long as they're going to pay me still, I don't care. But when he went up there, the first table in the front, long table, 15 women, bachelorette party, gigantic, blown up ring. You know, they're in all the garb, like doesn't say one fucking word to them. Wow. Plows through the set because he just wants the show to get going. And I'm like, Oh, you just shot not only yourself in the foot, but the rest of the lineup, because this is the biggest table right here. You might as well fucking talk to them. You can create moments that can go into your set. We're all humans here. Mm. You miss out on an opportunity there. So for me, if I feel like a joke's going down and I'm going down, I promise you I'm grabbing everything on my way down. I'll try anything, you know, but you got to take the good parts. You can't get hung up on the bad parts. You got to just take the good bits and just build off of those. Uh, your bad moments, that's the times for you to go, okay, well, you know what? Maybe you could hang that joke up for a bit. Maybe we don't need to do that. Yeah, it seems like the best comedians have to be really adept at reading whatever the temperature of the room is. You have to be like almost a uh, hyper empathic. Or like some sort of weird like profiler. Like you just be profiling people. I think all people have a general sense of when there's a tension in the room or something feels off, kind of like how we sense the weather, right? Right. If you're in a really hot room with a group of people or the temperature is freezing and everyone will be feeling it, it's not like some human bodies experience the temperature of 90 degrees is 30 degrees. No, we all experience heat. We all experience cold. And so if you're in a room with someone or a group of people and everyone is just freezing their asses off, at some point, someone's going to be like, hey, should we all put jackets on? Because it's freezing. Yeah. And it all takes is someone to just acknowledge it and be like, oh, you're right. Yeah, no, I'm, I've been shivering for 10 minutes. And it seems like it's the same thing with comedy. It's like if there's a gigantic elephant in the room in the shape of a group full of you know women on their bachelorette party or dudes who are all drunk and just like talking to each other, it's like everyone in the room understands that that's happening. And if the comic addresses it, it's almost like it releases a bunch of tension out of the room, right? Oh, yeah. It's like just letting a fart loose. Everyone <laughs> relaxes a little bit. I'm telling you, you want to trust when you sit in a fucking seat to watch comedy, you want to trust that person. You want to feel like I trust you to entertain me. Yeah. I've been the audience member. I fucking hate it. I don't want to sit there and do the courtesy laugh thing with you and help you along with your little fucking dream. No, I want you to entertain me. I want you to be damn ma'am funny. Mm. like so funny and I want to trust you. And so when you lose the audience's trust, when they start tuning out, mm. when you make one of those, you know, observations that releases that tension and lets that fart loose, they go, okay, all right. So can I trust you, bitch? Okay. Are you in the room? <laughs> can we trust you? Yeah. Get back to the funny. I have another um, Louis C.K. quote because I just watched this interview with him yesterday, but I think it's really relevant to your brand of comedy as well. He said, quote, you take people to a place that they hate that scares them or offends them or makes them feel bad when they think about it. You take them to that part of their brain and you make them laugh there and people love it, end quote. And I think that that really has something to do with what you were saying, which is just if people trust you, if they trust that where you're taking them is ultimately going to make them laugh or have some kind of insight or something, or even just a release, you know, to joke about a terrible topic, as long as the audience trusts you, you can pretty much take them anywhere, right? 
Absolutely. But it's about that trust. But you can always regain their trust back. That's the thing. You can always recover. Speaking about recovering or not recovering, every comic has a story about like the worst time they ever bombed. Has that been like ingrained in your brain? Do you remember one of the times like you just absolutely could not recover and the audience was just not giving you anything? No, Michael, that's never happened to me. I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Can't relate, okay? Um, No. So I just told the story not too long ago. I was opening up for Paul Mooney, may he rest in peace, at Caroline's Comedy Club. And he used to have this opener, Robin. She was from Deaf Comedy Jam, older woman. And she did not like me. It was Thanksgiving weekend. It was a sold out show, very busy weekend. Paul Mooney always does the late night. So it's Sunday night show. So that was probably like eight. No, it was probably had to be like a 10 o'clock show or something. Anyways, he was already an hour late. I was like an hour late as well because I was a goofy 20-year-old bitch who (laughs) went to Jersey to see her family and was like, yeah, we should just be like, what, an hour or two to get to the city? It's fucking Thanksgiving. Like the trains are not running like that. So I got there super late. By the time I walk in, I bring my cousin too, because you know what? Let me just embarrass myself in front of my family too. So I brought my cousin with me. We walk into the room. It's sold out. There's like 300 people in this room. Yeah, 250, 300 people they used to be able to fit in there. And she's killing it. I can tell they've been on a journey together. You know what I mean? She is crushing. They are loving her. And she goes to introduce me. And she goes, if you liked me, my name is Robin. And if you didn't, you can call me Christina Galston. Whoa. And she brings me on stage. And I'm shitting bricks as it is. Because the way that they all looked at me too was like if she was talking shit about everybody that wasn't there, you know? So I could tell that they had like really gotten close as a crowd. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. Oh my God. Right. So now I get up there and I'm very new to comedy. So I was doing like these really bad bits. God, these bits were so bad. And I don't even think I was even prepared. I think I just kind of went up there and at this point my nerves got the best of me. So I'm doing my bits. They're not doing well. I make a comment or I do something about being young. And this is Paul Mooney's crowd. So I talk about how young I am. And these people are like, oh, fuck this bitch. But I don't get off stage, right? I wait for the light. So I get the light. Robin comes back up. They're cheering their asses off. So it's definitely shade. And I get off stage and I turn around and she's wiping down everything that I touched. This is way before COVID, okay? This is like 2007. Jeez. She's wiping down the mic, the mic stand. She wiped down the fucking stool. She wiped down everything. And the whole room is looking at me, look at her. So I look at her and do that. And I look to the room and I made eye contact with like 300 people. And then after that, I just got really wasted and cried at the bar. (laughs) I was like so hurt. I was like, this fucking old hoe, (laughs) this bitch. Like I was already going to eat a dick. I don't think you had to hurt me like that, but okay. Yeah. But you know, thinking about it now, I'm like, oh, that's stupid. But at the time it was like, God, I remember I got home and like ran through my apartment and woke up all my roommates. It was like, everybody wake up. Everybody get out here. Yeah. I just witnessed a murder and the murder was me. (laughs) It was me. It was me. They literally 300 people made me eat a dick. Everyone wake up. And that was early on in your career. And I've heard from a lot of comics that it seems like there's somewhere within the seven to 10 year period 
like almost every comic I've heard on like you know podcasts or just in conversations about comedy, when someone says, oh, I've been doing stand-up for three years or four years, like the comic will be like, oh, you're still pretty early in your career. That's really young. Or it's really impressive how you're able to be this good with only three years of experience. And as someone who doesn't do stand-up comedy, like when I hear that someone's been doing stand-up for three years, five or six nights a week, sometimes multiple times a night, I think to myself, that sounds like a long time. But it seems like with stand-up comics in general, they seem to believe that somewhere around the decade mark is when someone gets truly good. Do you remember when you felt that? Do you remember when you were on stage and instead of the 20-year-old Christina who was, you know, maybe doing jokes that didn't work or couldn't read the room quite right or didn't know how to adapt to a hostile scenario, do you remember one of those first times in which you really felt truly actualized as a comic and you were like, oh, my jokes are working. I've got this. I can read the room. I feel really comfortable in this space. Yes. I would say right after I got back from Puerto Rico. So right before my, uh, we filmed in September, the Comedy Central, the mental health set. Was this 2021? Yes, 2021. Because I felt it in varying levels and degrees. There's like a back end part of the standup too, like a business end where it's like, if the stage shit doesn't match that, it doesn't really go anywhere or mean anything, you know? So I've had nothing but success on stage, sure, but I wasn't doing anything on my back end. I wasn't writing. I wasn't trying to build a pilot. I wasn't really doing anything podcast-wise. I wasn't posting. I wasn't filming anything and posting it. So it's kind of just like doing everything for nothing because, you know, you don't produce anything. You have the moment, yes, and you're funny, sure, but you haven't produced anything for people to see that weren't there. You know what I mean? Not everyone's going to be at that show that you were at the other fucking night. <laughs> yeah. So ever since that set, I've seen a different part of my work ethic, even though I would definitely call it baby steps, full on crawling, but a different part where I'm finally starting to make those connections and be like, okay, 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 okay. This shit is important too. Mm. Like I need to do all this other shit in order for me to feel that real confidence on stage. Like, yeah, I could crush the room, but am I filming? Am I good? Is this going to be a good set? Am I working on my bits? Did I go through my checklist tonight? Did I fucking make a checklist? What am I doing up here? Or am I just fucking around? There's sure feeling comfortable on stage. Yeah, there's varying degrees of that. But feeling like comfortable in my shit, like I'm doing this shit, like this matters what I do. I've been feeling that finally since last year. It's a really underappreciated aspect of entertainment in general that folks who aren't in it or who aren't doing writing or performing or stand-up comedy or podcasting or whatever, that can be underappreciated because just like you said, you can't just be good at the one thing that you're supposed to be really good at. You have to be good at like six other skills that are only very loosely related to the act of stand-up comedy. Like you have to be like the CEO, the secretary, the COO, like you have to be yeah. multiple different people within the company that is Christina Galston. Yeah. So in comedy, there's always like these, you know, gatekeepers of information. And it's like, I've never been that kind of person. I tell any comic that asks me about starting comedy, getting further in their career. I'm like, all of that is good and well, but if you're not writing, if you don't have anything else to offer, you're wasting time once you finally reach the point of a general meeting. Mm. You're going to get into your general. They're going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw the stand-up. We looked at all your socials. We looked at everything like that. What else are you working on? What do you got? What else? They're going to be wondering what else, and you're not going to have anything. You're going to have, what, a bunch of ideas to tell them? That gives them nothing. They don't have anything for that. Right. You don't want to spend the rest of your life, you know, trying to vie for $25, $30 spots and, you know, drink tickets and shit. Like, come on, it's not sustainable. Yeah, that's so true. 
this is going to be a, a bit of a pivot, but it was something that I came across as I was prepping for our conversation that I found not only to be a really interesting topic, but also something that kind of irked me. It was something that someone said about your act, and I thought it would be good to talk about because I think it's really relevant. Oh, let's talk about this hater. Yeah. And thank you for being a real one, Michael. <laughs> that pissed you off. I know that's right. I want to start off with another YouTube comment, and it was a YouTube comment for your most recent special about mental health. And the YouTube commenter said, quote, I'm so glad an incredibly funny Latina represent rockin' the high bun and big hoops keep on killing it, end quote, right? Mm -hmm. It was specifically this commenter being able to see themselves, not only in the stories you were telling, but the way in which you were presenting yourself while telling them, right? Mm -hmm. And you talk about in your stand-up or even in some of the stuff you improvise either via Kill Tony, which you appeared on twice, or in some of your roast battles, you often put your identity, you know, as someone of Jewish and Puerto Rican heritage, kind of front and center, because it's ultimately part of who you are. Like the story that you experienced growing up in Florida is inherently part of who you are in the same way that my story growing up in a suburb of Armenian and Irish descent is part of who I am. And the reason that I bring all this up is because there was a roast battle that you were part of back in around 2017. At that time, you were undefeated. You had three roast battles leading up to this one. And in this fourth roast battle, you lost. And Michael Che was one of the judges. Oh, I remember. I'm sure you do. <laughs> Because he had this commentary, which I understood where he was coming from, especially speaking as a black comic himself. I understand it. And I'm going to kind of summarize it here. And then I want to hear your thoughts on it. He critiqued you because he thought that you were leaning too hard into the, quote, Latina or Puerto Rican persona. And he thought that it was an act you were putting on. And he like criticized kind of that and then the clothing you were wearing. And I understood where he was coming from because I imagine he was coming from a place of hey, you don't have to play up whatever identity you think a white audience is going to respond to. You can be authentic. You don't have to do this, right? So I got his critique, but I thought as someone who has seen way more of your work than Michael Che has, right. I think he was off base because it's just who you are. And also, full disclosure to the audience, I know Christina outside of this podcast, we've interacted many times in real life. Right. I know that your standup at times is a heightened version of who you are or a heightened version of scenarios that happen in your life, but that's just standup comedy. And so I guess my question to you, Christina, is what is it like working and living as a standup comic who is of Puerto Rican descent, who is sometimes or perhaps oftentimes racialized in a way that is stereotypical? How do you navigate that fine line between embracing your own heritage and telling stories that are authentic to you while kind of keeping in mind, I imagine, that feeling that Dave Chappelle had on The Chappelle Show 20 years ago, right? Where he was doing sketches that were true to and kind of sometimes gently mocking the Black experience in America, but also realizing that epiphany that he had when he turned and saw the camera guy, a white dude, laughing, according to Chappelle, perhaps too hard at some of the racial humor that Chappelle had in his sketches, right? Because I feel like as a woman and as a Puerto Rican in comedy, you have to juggle a lot of shit that maybe someone who looks like me wouldn't have to do. And so for me, just to see that Michael Che critique, which again, I understand where he's coming from, but I felt it was too harsh. How do you kind of navigate that space as an artist? Well, I would like to say that my first reaction to when he said that was confusion and then immediately concern. I want to know what light-skinned Puerto Rican woman hurt him <laughs> and why he saw that woman in me. Yeah, That was just my natural reaction to that. And I'm usually, I get to get a read on people. He ended up apologizing later in the bar for it, which I was just like, honestly, it was weird. But past that, and again, in roast battle, and Yamanika, one of my good friends, has been a judge for me before and during the battles. Because I, I just think if you're going to do jokes about me being Puerto Rican or being Spanish, like, 
we're doing jokes in roles of something that is supposed to be embarrassing to you. I'm never going to be embarrassed about being Spanish. Right. Like at all, or being Puerto Rican or being Jurican or my dad or nothing. I'm not going to be embarrassed of none of that shit. So that's one. And then I feel like as far as the race thing goes, I grew up with Puerto Rican and black cousins mostly. Uh, me and my sisters are the only ones that are Puerto Rican and white. And then we had our white cousins on my father's side. But I spent a lot of time with my black cousins. And for me, I don't think I ever can honestly really, really be like, yeah, I've been racialized or this or that. I think I honestly get to walk those lines kind of flawlessly. Well, you have that joke about <laughs> about your last name. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I have this joke where, well, I had this thing that I said not too long ago where I was like, you know, I thank God every day that I'm half Puerto Rican. And then I thank God every day that I'm half white. I just do a little bit of everything. And unfortunately, it does put me within eyeline of people that are comfortable saying fucked up shit or doing fucked up shit around me or, you know, acting racist or being surprised when they meet my family. Mm. You know, that's always going to be a thing. And I'll probably get more angry than my cousins would or other people like that would. But, you know, there's also shit that I don't see because it's not my reality. Right. I get to dip in and out of a lot of different worlds. I would say flawlessly. I think I do a pretty good job of it. <laughs> but um, I stopped doing roast battles after that because I was like, these bitches are not going to talk about anything except me being Puerto Rican. And that's why. So I totally get what you're saying. Like as a as a light skinned, you know, some of these words are so academic, but quote unquote, white passing or like more approachable. You have this bit about how I'm so glad I have like a, you know, a white sounding or Jewish last name because it makes me more approachable to white people, which I think there's like a kernel of truth in that, right? You were like, if I was a Jimenez or Hernandez. Yeah, that's literally why my mom kept the last name. We asked my mom when we were older, because at that point it was like, you are fully gay. You are not with dad anymore. Why don't you go back to your maiden name? She's like, because I would just sound like any other Spanish person. Mm -hmm. I'd want to sound like I'm different. Galston is a good name. And she even said it. She was like, besides, white people are always going to trust you guys. Don't worry about it. <laughs> she always acted like she, whatever she did was a fucking favor to us. It's nice to hear that Che apologized afterwards because, I, I mean, I'm a fan of his work. But again, just as someone who has interacted with you way more than Che had at that particular moment. It's just interesting because it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't thing, right? It's like, oh, have the last name to be approachable by white people. But also, if you act as your authentic self, you might get critiqued by other comedians. Oh, I never even thought about that, Michael. Damn, dog, you're right. It's a double bind, right? It's such a double-edged sword. You're so right. Your authentic self can be seen by some comics, like Che observed in that evening, as a stereotype when all I saw, again, having interacted with you, was, no, that's just Christina. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you have it from both ends. Hey, be less like yourself. But I feel like when people don't know other people and they don't like something about them, and I know that this is kind of cliche, but it is true. When people run up on somebody and they don't really like them and they didn't take two seconds to get to know them, it's because you see something in them that reminds you a little bit of yourself that you think is cringe. You know what I mean? Yes. Maybe in that sense, you know, you don't want to act too much of something or, you know, I've had other comedians be like, what is this voice that you're doing? And I'm like, I'm not doing a voice. <laughs> maybe you, maybe you be doing a voice. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I'm not doing a voice. Like I have inflections and certain tones and accents that I dip in and out of, but that's authentic to me. So it's not, you know, embarrassing. I'm not like, oh man, you caught me acting like somebody else. Like, no. To start wrapping us out, Christina, because I want to be sensitive to your time, you said something at the start of our conversation where you were saying that late night shows aren't ready or aren't right for your kind of comedy. 
And I think that's true, but I don't think it's bad. Some of my favorite stand-up comics are folks like Sam Morrill or Mark Normand or Taylor Tomlinson, who will tell like similarly borderline offensive or really honest or raw kinds of comedy and stories that wouldn't either fit within the tight time constraints of a late night comedy show or really be appropriate for that kind of more PG-13 rated audience. But one of the things I think is really fantastic about the era that we're living in, especially for stand-up comics and pretty much any kind of creative creator, is with places like YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, you don't really need to rely on those old guards anymore. And anyway, that audience that would hear you like with Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon or whatever, wouldn't like your comedy anyway, because they're like, you know, not to be ageist. They're all like, they're just, they're they're not, they're not going to relate to your content because right. you would never interact with them in real life. They're going to be like, I didn't even think about my pussy meat until today. <laughs> exactly, right? And I can't believe they're letting her say pussy meat on TV. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like the way that a lot of folks in your industry are getting exposure these days are taping their stand-up and then clipping it and then putting it as a YouTube short or putting it on Instagram yeah. and building that audience organically. So I guess for the final question, Christina, for the where we go next question, how are you navigating social media, the internet in general and building your career now that you've kind of reached that point in your career where you were talking about earlier, where you're realizing, okay, I can't just be good at stand-up. I have to be the CEO of my own company and do all these other things. Like, How are you experiencing that now in 2022 and where do you see your career going next? I am experiencing it uh, this year just by noticing that, you know, I need to be more on top of that. You know what I'm saying? Like I try to record all of my sets and, you know, just clipping them down and just trying to, like I said, when you don't do something for your life, it's always going to be weird when you do it. And I think that this is one of those things like stand up. It's just the back end of it for me where it's such baby steps. It's crawling. It looks weird because I've never done it before. But the more that I do it, you know, I even have like old friends that'll hit me up and be like, hey, you should do your post like this, or I think you might get more traction like that. So people see me trying and they're being supportive. I also have to like get past my addiction to Instagram scrolling until I drop my phone on my face. Like I think everyone's <laughs> suffering from that these days. And what I see from my career is just, I've always had some of the best fans in the world. Like I've always had just a great fan base. I'm very, very open online too open, I've been told. <laughs> but I've had a lot of fans have become friends over the pandemic. You know, we reached out to each other, checked up on each other and stuff. So I really do, I think, attract some of the greatest people as just, you know, fans and people that like my shit. And I just want to grow more of that. I just want more of those kind of people around me so I can create more stuff. Because when I was doing my podcast, you know, I had people reach out to me all the time and write me all the time about relating to a lot of, you know, those honest, fucked up, hilarious stories, you know? Yeah, no, that's so true. You know, there is an essay, an idea that I've referenced on this podcast multiple times, but it's the idea of a thousand true fans. It was this article that was written back in 2008. I'll link it in the show notes, but it's this idea that it was true then and is even more true 14 years later, which sounds crazy to say. But it's this idea that if you're a content creator, right, if you're a writer, if you're a podcaster, if you're a stand-up comedian, etc., all you need to have a really great life financially is 1,000 true fans. And what that means is, is, you know, as a stand-up comic, you can't get away with just having 1,000 people spread across the United States who are going to show up to your shows. You'll never be able to fill a theater that way. Right. But what they mean by 1,000 true fans is, let's say you have 10,000 fans or 100,000 fans. Within that fan group, right, however many millions or hundreds of thousands of people are watching your content online, you just need 1,000 true fans who are going to support you 
Ride or Die With You, buy all of your merch, buy every album that comes out, go to every show they can. 1,000 people who will absolutely stick by your side. And you can make a living off of those 1,000 people because they're your true dyed-in-the-wool, always-be-with-you fans. And it seems like in the age of social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, etc., it's easier than ever for stand-up comics like you who, and not to shower you with too much praise, Christina, but if you look at the YouTube comments of your most recent video that came out in March of this year, I mean, it is overwhelmingly positive. Just the amount of love that you're getting in those comments from people who either find your content really relatable or your presence really authentic or your stories vulnerable, raw, and connecting with people in a very real way. I think we've never lived in a better time for folks like you whose stand-up might not be quote-unquote right for the Jimmy Kimmel audience, but there are going to be people out there who are absolutely going to relate to your material. Because even me, who is not Jewish nor Puerto Rican and who grew up in an entirely different state and in an entirely different circumstance than you, I relate to so much of your humor in a way that is way more authentic than me than talking about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for two minutes. So to you, Christina, I I would just like to say that I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great getting to know you better. And I really strongly implore anyone listening to this podcast to check out her YouTube links, which are in the show notes, because if you couldn't already tell from this conversation, she's hilarious. So Christina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Michael. This was bomb. It was so fun. 